Executive Director of the George W. Bush Institute, Holly Kuzmich, spent seven years working on policy in the Bush administration, particularly education policy. And as we wade into uncharted waters with so much classroom time being missed by students, she explains what federal, state, and district education leaders have to be thinking about, both for a future where schools reopen, as well as how to tackle problems in the here and now. What you're also seeing is certain leaders really step up and say, this is not ideal in any way, shape, or form, but we've got to start figuring it out and we've got to get creative. We'll talk about the necessity of home internet access. If there was ever an argument before that it was a luxury, that's no longer the case. And we'll talk about how schools will measure after losing a year of important data and just who in the government will be making the decisions of how schools will reopen and adjust. I'm Andrew Kaufman, and this is The Strategist, presented by the George W. Bush Presidential Center. Many of you might recognize the voice of today's guest, Holly Kuzmich, Executive Director of the George W. Bush Institute and education expert, has been our co-host multiple times. But today she's in the hot seat, having spent seven years working on policy issues in the Bush administration, including as Assistant Secretary for Legislation and Congressional Affairs at the Department of Education. So, Holly, welcome, friend. Good to talk to you, Andrew. And uh, so it's it's pretty obvious, I think, that the coronavirus has caused a pretty major disruption in our education system. And um, there are probably a lot of kids who are just thrilled and over the moon. I know I, as a kid, would have been excited to wait, I'm not going to school for how many months um, but you know, realistically, that's this is probably going to cause some some long ranging effects that we want to talk to you about today. So, is it first off? Is this safe to say we're in an we're in uncharted territory right now? This is pretty uncharted territory. I mean, we have 50 million school kids who are at home, nearly all of whom are going to miss multiple months of school because of what's going on. Well, and so. You know, we we think back historically to to some just slight analogs. You were in the Bush administration um, when Katrina hit, um, which caused a lot of shutdown, school shutdowns in in Louisiana. What did we learn from those lessons? Yeah, I mean, to your point earlier, the part of the reason this is so unprecedented is because of the fact that kids all across the country are out of school. It it felt pretty unprecedented after Katrina, and it was, of course, especially for the kids who lived in New Orleans and the surrounding areas in Louisiana. But at that time, you know, it was a couple hundred thousand students who were immediately displaced from schools and ended up in surrounding states, including a lot of uh, kids in Texas and Dallas and Houston and elsewhere in the state who who were um, who had often missed several weeks of school, sometimes months of school because their families were, you know, just trying to figure out where to go. And then there was the issue of um, schools were taking this influx of new students in, uh, you know, so public schools all across the all across the country were taking in students um, who had been displaced because of Katrina. So a couple of issues that we were dealing with then, I was at the Department of Education there. Margaret Spellings was our was our secretary of education. Number one, for schools that were taking in students, they needed more money pretty immediately. I mean, they, you know, an influx of kids meant we've got to give them resources. And so we had to figure out how to give them, just like now in the CARES Act, very quick, very immediate funding to supplement the needs that they had. Number two, we had some issues to think about related to assessments and accountability. 
um, because the, the challenge schools and districts were facing was they were getting students in. They were educating them, of course. Um, but then they were thinking about, OK, well, I haven't been teaching this student for many years. And am I going to be held accountable for the results of the student in terms of school grades that come out annually? So we had to think about all the guidance that we would give to states um, in terms of how to handle that. The way we thought about it at the U.S. Department of Education was that we we couldn't just take a pass for a year, right? Like there, there's a real temptation to say we're in unprecedented times. You know, we just need to put everything on hold. Well, it is still really important to understand how well kids are doing. And I think what and we'll talk about this. One of the things we're we're going to be facing with COVID nineteen is you know, with state assessments canceled, how do we think about measuring student learning and all the affiliated things that come with that um, and ensuring we know, you know, how students were doing. One of the things that districts did back after Katrina was when they got, you remember this happened in, in you know, the start of the school year um, mm-hmm. yep. and the state assessment doesn't happen until the spring. So they were getting all these new kids in districts would give diagnostic tests to kids to figure out, okay, you're new in our school, you're new in our district. Let's do a benchmark assessment and figure out how well you're doing. And that was really important for them in terms of figuring out how to teach those kids. And I think we're going to need to see something similar coming out of COVID-19. And, you know, also looking back to the, the, Financial crisis also had some had had major effects on the education system. It wasn't it wasn't keeping as many kids out of school necessarily, but um, that was another crisis to work with. What did did y'all learn lessons from that also? Yeah, and the thing that wasn't so obvious about that crisis and why you know a federal agency like the Department of Education had any real significant role in that. You're right; it wasn't that kids were out of school. It was that um, the federal government and the U.S. Department of Education is the guarantor of federal student loans for kids in college all across the country. And so at that time, the issue we were dealing with was that all of the student lenders who were giving loans to students for college were invested in mortgage-backed securities, which, of course, Hmm. uh, were, were, you know, underwater because of the financial crisis. And so our student lenders were then... their cash flow was impacted and they couldn't lend to students. So we had to very quickly figure out how to keep student loans uh, going to kids because kids still wanted to be in college and get their education. And we didn't want kids to be impacted and not be able to get loans. So a couple of the things just to keep in mind from that, number one, it just sort of tells you, you know, well, most of the focus then was, of course, on the general economic impact. Um, and the housing crisis, there are all these reverberating effects that happen when you have big economic crises like this. And we're going to see, I mean, we're already seeing that in, in some cases um, in the world of schools. You see that in the fact that, you know, kids are not in school. But one of the things that's become really clear is that kids get a lot of their meals in school, especially you know, low income yeah. families. That's how they get breakfast and lunch. And so you've seen school districts put in place ways to get meals to kids and families because they realize schools aren't just about schools and academics. They provide all these interesting support services. So you've got to think about those reverberating effects and all of the different downstream issues that you're going to have to deal with. Yeah, we were actually talking to um, uh, the founders of Get Shift Done here yesterday on 
um, for this, and they were talking about how they they're trying they were trying to problem solve by um, sending shift workers that have lost their jobs in the hospitality industry to nonprofits and also to schools to help schools distribute meals that they normally are, are doing. It's, and it's going to take a lot of different industries working together to get through this to get through this crisis. Right. And so, speaking specifically about the crisis. Um, right now we're at a point where most schools have canceled the rest of the school year. Like were, that's, that's out of the picture now. Um, what does this mean? Assuming we're all going back, all the kids are going back in the fall. What does this mean for the school year and how do we make up this missed time? Because every day we know every day is critical in, in an education cycle. And so how are we going to make up for literally months of missed time? Yeah, well, one of the things this is really going to show and that people in um, the world of education know this, but but I think it's going to raise this awareness even more broadly in the general public is, you know, it's really going to exacerbate issues we have with the achievement gap. And when we talk about the achievement gap in education, what we're talking about is the fact that low income and minority students are, you know, often 20 or 30 points behind their peers in terms of reading and math skills. And it's an issue we've known about for a long time. We, we, um, I, we need to kind of keep our eye on the ball on that. And this is only going to make it worse, unfortunately, in the short term. I mean, across the country, the gap between low-income students and their higher-income peers last year in reading and math was 30 percentage points. So where you see about, you know, 50-ish percent of kids nationwide on grade level in reading and math in middle and upper income, you only see about 20% of kids proficient who are low income. Number one, that's a really jarring stat in and of itself. And number two, the kids who are going to be impacted the most by being out of school are these low income kids. And so we've really got to pay attention to that just in terms of the general strategies that states and districts think about in terms of when we come back to school in the fall, what we're going to face. Um, I mean, you know, we talk about a problem in education called the summer slide, which is that kids tend to lose skills over the summer. And that's particularly true for low income kids where they usually lose about at least a month of instruction. That's if they go through the end of the school year. And so it's going to be even worse, um, and we're going to have to be prepared for that. And and I think the thing we need to acknowledge is that for a lot of um, families with means, they're going to figure that, number one, they're going to eke their way through this spring and figure out how to give their kids enough. And they'll also be able to make up for some of it next year. I mean, they'll find supplemental ways to give their kids tutors. And so it's what we've really got to keep our eye on um, are the kids who, you know, are going to be challenged the most. Um, there's a couple ways to think about this. I mean, number one, uh, in, in school, I mean, school districts have to deal with the most immediate thing right now, which is how do we give kids some level of instruction while they're home? But of course, they do have to think about the fall and they're starting to think about that. And some of the things that are being talked about are number one, we might have to start school early. I mean, when you miss, several months of school and what we would call time on task and instructional time, you'd have to figure out a way to make it up. Um, and so one of the ways to do that is to start school early. It's to start to think about a whole bunch of supplemental services that you could provide during the school year in terms of more intense tutoring and instruction, especially for kids who need it. Um, 
there's been um, there's been some talk, although I disagree with it and don't think this is the right way to go, uh, just keeping kids in the same grade at the start of next year. Um, I would have lost my mind as a kid. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of reasons that 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 would be challenging, a whole variety of reasons that that would be challenging. And what I think is going to be interesting, I will say, as somebody who has worked in education policy for a while, one of the things this this points out, and it's going to be interesting to see if if we talk about things like starting school early and eating into what would otherwise be summer. Um, number one, I actually think that's an interesting discussion to have. And sometimes it's a crisis like this, which forces us to, to say, you know, why do we do things like we do? I mean, the, the school calendar that we have today is built off an agrarian society of 100 years ago. It was when you need, farmers needed uh, to take and their families needed to take the summer off and tend to their crops. Right. Just free labor from the kids. Correct. We still have a school year, though, that is built off that agrarian model. That's the origins of this. And we've never really changed how we think about our school year. Now, there are some districts across the country or schools who do what we call year-round schooling, where they'll take a three-week break, you know, at multiple points throughout the year. And honestly, that's probably better for kids um, in terms of dealing with some of those summer slide issues than the way we do it now. So it's going to be interesting to see, but there's a cultural reaction to that. Number one, people love their summer vacation. Families love their summer break. Then there are things like summer camps who build their entire businesses off of, you know, that model. Oh, yeah. And honestly, you know, if you ever got into a discussion about changing the timing of the school year, those are the kinds of groups that oppose changes because it impacts their business pretty significantly. So it's going to, as we start this conversation about how to how to attend to this next year, it's going to open up some of these discussions that people have been having in the margins in education for a while. And it's going to be interesting to see the reaction. Yeah, I think I even remember talks of year-round school when I was in school, which would have been a very, very long time ago. And it was, it was almost... It almost almost sounded like a threat at the time. Like you'd have year rounds. We're like, wait, what? But then it, there are a lot of logical reasons for it too. So, and it's not any more school, right? That's the, <laughs> what, that's what you thought. You were opposed to it because it sounded like more school, right? It's not it's a more marketing school. issue. It always comes back to marketing. <laughs> yeah, it's not more school. It's just spread out differently throughout the year. <laughs> So we, we're as we start talking about these debates of when school is going to come back and how how they're going how schools are going to adjust. Who's making these decisions? Is this come? Is this going to come from the Department of Education and the federal government? Is it being done at a state level? Is it locally at a district level? Like who's what's what's that decision making process looking like? Yeah, no, it's not the federal government. The federal government does not have a role in determining how many days of instruction and how long the school year is, and negotiating with with the teachers to understand that. That is that is done uh, mostly at the local level. Um, and so district by district, they're going to be thinking about um, they're going to be thinking about this. Now, if we're smart, um, organizations that work with school districts across the country and work with at the state level as well, where some of this comes into play, they're going to think at a broad level and hopefully give some guidance to states and districts to say, here's some ways you could think about this. Um, but no, it's not going to be the federal government who weighs on weighs in on this. I mean, education. It's mostly a state and local issue in terms of where the money comes from and in terms of where the decisions are made. So we could theoretically see a see a world where 
a bunch of kids are going back, going back to school, let's say July, and then others are coming back in August and others, September, October, who you knows, could. depending on how things go. You could. Interesting. Um, and so what do then state policymakers and the federal government, what do they need to be thinking about it here in the middle and, and long term? Well, one of the big things that um, states, one, one big thing that's in the purview of state policymakers is the assessments, because every state has a statewide assessment. It's actually a requirement. The federal government requires every state to have a state assessment in reading and math in grades three through eight and once in high school. But the state gets to actually design and choose the assessment. And it's states who actually put in place uh, the state assessment. So in Texas, that's the STAR test. And those tests are given in the spring. And so there, and those tests have essentially been canceled all across the country. Um, and so one of the things they're going to have to think about is what do we do about the fact that we will have a missing year of data on the state assessment? And that's important for a couple of reasons. Number one, it provides diagnostic info to teachers and schools and administrators to understand how individual students are doing. And so that's why, you know, when I talked about Katrina and how districts did, did diagnostic tests for kids who came into the district uh, from New Orleans, we need to think about something similar in terms of at the start of the school year, what kinds of um, diagnostic tests might we use to understand where kids are when they come back in August and September. And that should be, that is something that states really should be thinking through right now. Um, the other thing that, that they need to think about is that those tests are used for things like um, teacher pay, sometimes for principal pay. They're used for school ratings, for interventions. How do we support schools that, that you know, are performing poorly? You have to think about, given the fact that you don't have that piece of data, how do you support all of that? How do you still provide interventions to schools? How do you still provide grades for schools um, and not just sort of lose an entire year? So that's an important thing. The other thing that's that's really going to be challenging is that state revenues are going to be down. Um, just the, the drain on the economy means that states are going to have budget crunches. And so governors and legislatures are going to have really tough decisions to make about where they spend their state resources, given that coffers will be down at the state level. And I would argue that um, they, they need to be really strategic about how they invest in education and, and they really need to understand how important it is to the long-term prosperity of their state and their workforce. It's gonna be tough in, in those legislatures next year. Yeah, and I know too at the at the Bush Institute, we're always looking at at education data and um, from a, a number of sources from across different states, and as do a lot of people. And the recommendations and the the thinking that's coming from these tests are it's going to be you're going to have for a long time this this gap year where where really all the trend lines are going to be affected because of it. Right? Yes, you are exactly. Um, and you know we're we're actually working on a project right now to create a state by state dashboard on educational performance that'll go into the workforce. Um, and ha having kind of a missing year of data is going to be a tough thing. You know, I would argue that you can't just, even though it was of course the right thing to do, and there was no way to give state assessments this spring. Um, you do have to be creative about how you think about the information you need 
in the next school year and not just wait until the spring um, for that next state assessment and, and use some of those diagnostics um, to get us the information we need. You mentioned that one of the issues that we're going to be facing is just the the decreased revenue from the from the states. And we do have the, the some some federal funding coming in in these emergency acts. What kind of things will that money be used for? Like, there's going to be some money coming in. So, what does it get used for? It's pretty flexible money um, to the states. Uh, they can use it pretty immediately. They can use it for some of the technology needs they have um, in terms of providing devices to students hotspots to students, et cetera. Um, but then, of course, they can also use it uh, this summer and into the fall as they think about how to, you know, if they if they decide to start school early, they can use it for those kinds of things. Because it's just, of course, it costs money to start school earlier. You have to pay teachers and you, you have, have to... You have to pay teachers. And yeah, so I mean, it's not free to do that. And, and of course, teachers are still working from home and teaching right now. It's just, but we're not getting, it's not the same, right? You're not getting the same level of instruction and engagement. So we're just going to have to pay for it if we decide we're going to add on instruction or start school early. And, and that's what a lot of that is going for, as well as these very immediate needs that school districts have in terms of um, the technology needs they have. So, you know, you're talking a little bit about technology how how much are schools going online right now? Is that is that something that we're seeing all over the place that instruction is continuing online or is it really on a district by district basis? Why are we not online more if we're not already doing that? So you've seen you've seen I was just looking at some of the data on this. We're now in what week four essentially of only only four now? Yeah, I think I think we're in week four, right? Of really being at home. When, di- when we looked at districts in weeks one and two, the percentage who were doing online instruction was under 50%, and it's grown. Um, it took some of them a week or two to get plans in place to figure out how to do this. We also had spring break in there. So the number has been trending up. It's definitely a majority of districts who are providing online instruction, but not everybody. And one of the interesting debates and, and sort of arguments that's come up in this is, you know, you've seen examples of school districts who at first said, we're not going to provide mandatory online instruction. We'll provide you some optional resources, but we're not going to ask kids to show up. And this is all kind of done on your own time. And there has been some pushback to that. And I think rightly so, because, and one of the reasons that districts said that was, well, some kids don't have internet or devices or special education is hard to provide in an online format. That's true. Those are all very true statements. However, they were making the argument that if you then can't provide instruction for every single kid, that you then provide it for nobody. And um, that, unfortunately, has been an argument in the world of education for way too long. And this is kind of bringing it up again in a very public way. But I would argue you've got to do the best you can. And you've got to provide at least some level of instruction to kids. And I have to give a shout out to to districts like Dallas, who have done a pretty remarkable job at figuring out how to give devices and hotspots to kids who don't have internet access or a device at home. So for all the arguments that people say, well, it's unfair if they don't have it, well, let's figure it out, right? Like, we might not get it right for every single kid 
but you shouldn't say, no, we're not going to do it for tens of thousands of kids in a district because there might be a few who, who can't have access to it. Um, and so this is really kind of exposing this debate in education of, of how do you think about fairness and equity? But I would argue that, you know, what you're also seeing is certain leaders really step up and say, this is not ideal in any way, shape or form. But we've got to start figuring it out and we've got to get creative. And, you know, this whole issue of Internet access is one that's obviously really becoming apparent here, too, that so many of us take for granted that we have the Internet at home. A lot of people can't afford it. And it becomes sort of as they think about their utility bills, they need to pay for their electricity more than they need to pay for their Internet. And so a lot of people don't have it. Um, there are 12 million American school children who lack access to home internet access. So that's a real, that's a real problem that districts are having to, to work on in terms of thinking about how to give out hotspots and devices. Um, so kids can be able to work at home. Yeah, we've really seen during this during this crisis how critical it is to have internet, whether that's for your work or for education. It's, it's, really exposed that it's not it's not optional in this day and age and and that's a real it's a real gap in our society for those that don't have it. Yeah, and I mean rural areas face this significantly, right? I mean broadband access is a real issue um for people who live in rural areas, so rural school districts are really having to face this. But I will also say I, I heard a story the other day of a of a um a school district here in the Dallas area that's a you know in a pretty nice suburb of Dallas, where you wouldn't necessarily assume that there's a large number of people without internet access. And a school principal was talking about how parents were driving to the school parking lot to use the school's Wi-Fi so that their kids oh, wow. could do assignments online. I mean, how heartbreaking is that? That that's, yeah. that's what people are having to do to get somewhere where they can get internet access. But and and like shout out to those parents for being willing to take time sure. out of their day and drive to the school parking lot and have their kids get online instruction in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, that's that's dedicated problem solving thinking, which is that's we're all in kind of in a place where you've got to make adjustments and you know, we've been lucky our weather hasn't been bad here yet, and so you can you can do some things like that, right. which is right. kudos to those parents. Um which is you know, a kind of a good a good transition. You talked a little bit about how the Dallas Independent School District has been doing some positive things and getting their kids online. Um, so, what are some other positives that might come out of this? Like, we're obviously dealing with a real challenge, and what can we learn? And what are some innovations that are come out of this that will have a long term positive effect? Yeah, I think. Well, I think all of this online learning is going to tell us some things. Number one, I think it's going to be interesting to just see if there's more cultural acceptance of online learning from teachers and parents. It's definitely not, um, you know, I think people realize how tough it is to be a teacher in a classroom right now. <laughs> and, and online in and of itself is tough, especially for parents who are working from home and not, you know, they're not able to sort of be with their kid at all minutes of the day. And help them out. But I do think there's just going to be people are just exposed to online learning. What's possible, right? Like, what can you do? How can teachers hold class using Zoom? Um, how can they work with students using technology? Um, the thing that technology holds promise in, too, is this whole issue of personalized instruction, meaning, Andrew, wherever you are, it's very different from where I may be, even if we're both in the fifth grade studying math. 
um, and technology can provide a level of personalized instruction. So I think there's just going to be number one, some cultural acceptance of it. Number two, people will just be exposed to it in a way that will learn some things about online instruction. Um, And of course, the thing that I hope people learn out of any crisis and just take a little bit of time to attend to is once this is all over, leaders, whether that's principals or district officials or state leaders, need to spend some time looking at lessons that they learned and how they can better prepare the next time. And sometimes um, you get through a crisis and you're just so exhausted that you don't spend the time saying, what did we learn? What could we have done better? And that's always an important part of any sort of crisis situation. Right. Which it brings back why those, why these assessments are so important. Cause we, and we'll see at the next round of assessments, what has been the long-term impact of this. And it's hard to really know that impact without those assessments. Yeah. So I think finally, just on another positive, what have we learned about the role of schools? I know I've seen my my Instagram feed is filled with parents who are like, I can't believe that there are teachers that do this every day for nine months out of the year. And, um, you know, one that made me kind of chuckle is, can I homeschool parents? Like, can I transfer my kid to someone else's classroom? And, you know, and there's so I see that increased appreciation for teachers, which is nice. What, what else have we learned about the role of schools during this? Yeah, I mean, number one, you're right. I mean, just that appreciation for teachers and what they do. And I have to say, give a, like, for teachers who are teaching from home, but who also have their own kids who are there with them, I can't imagine how hard it is for for teachers with their own children sort of trying to figure out how to do all of this. So that appreciation for teachers is deserved. And I think is one of those um, uh, things that will come out of this. I also think we're just realizing the role of schools in our communities and having an appreciation for that, too. Right. Schools are, of course, about teaching kids skills they need in academics, but they also do a lot of other things. They're essentially childcare providers for all these parents who are realizing, you know, having my child at home every day, like I, I need to be able to work. And so schools just fill this void of being childcare providers. As we see kids running through every shot of every Zoom meeting right. um, that right. <laughs> here this during this time. And, and especially for low-income parents who, you know, can't afford um, childcare, you know, otherwise, like schools just play a very vital role in that. They, as we talked about earlier, they provide meals to kids. I mean, the National School Breakfast Program and the School Lunch Program, we provide so many meals to kids across this country. It allows kids to develop social skills. I mean, I know my niece and nephew were really disappointed about school being canceled, partly because of being able to see their friends and the social yeah. aspect of school. Sure. Um, I miss the office. Same reason. Exactly. And then all think about all the extracurricular activities that kids participate in at school band and music and sports and arts and, you know, all of those things that just add so much. Um, And just that, that real role and how important schools are. I will also say, you know, schools are big employers. So part of what I hope is that we're able to figure out how to get back, partly because of the millions of people who are employed as teachers and support personnel in our schools across the country, it'll be good for our economy too. You know, even though I think there is one group that's that's probably loving this, and that's the dogs. I think we heard your dog in the background there for a second. <laughs> that's life in life in Zoom now, as as we get to meet each other's pets. That's right. 
<laughs> I think the final thing we always, you know, we've been asking everybody this, and so let's we're not going to let you off the hook. What is uh, what is something that we're not talking enough about as a nation that we t- should be talking about, whether that's COVID nineteen related or or otherwise? Well, I just think that um, I don't know whether we're not talking about it enough, but one of the things that I just think this crisis is making us realize that feels very different from other sort of, you know, big significant uh, crises we've been through because of this whole issue of having to stay at home and not see and be with other people is just how important um, connecting with other human beings is in our life. 9-11 felt different, but we didn't have to isolate ourselves because we didn't have to isolate ourselves in our own homes. Like this whole issue of isolating ourselves in our home, I think is really... um, bringing out just this realization for how important human connection is with other people in a whole variety of ways, whether that's for kids and, and their friends at school or whether it's adults in the workplace or churches, just that aspect of human connection and how much we miss it and how nice it will be to get back to that. Well, it's sometimes hard to think about what would this, I know I'm, connecting with people mostly through FaceTime and Zoom meetings. What would this look like? What would this have looked like 15 years ago where we didn't have um, as much technology to get through it? It's it's kind of mind boggling in a way yeah, to think about. Yeah. Or 150 years ago where you right. know we didn't have uh, hardly any form of communication to be able to talk to others. Right. Other than you could Morse code your friend something. Was that 150 right. years ago? Carrier that was my, pigeons. That was my history. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You know, I visited my parents last night for the and stood in their front yard and yelled at them as they opened the window inside and we kept, we kept a distance and that's, you know, you, you look and that's, that's where we're at. That's, yeah. that's what we have to do now. And hopefully this will, will turn around soon. Yeah. So Holly, thanks again for spending this time. I think this was really interesting look at, at education policy and how, how schools are dealing with it. And, and we appreciate the time spent explaining some of this stuff to us. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, let's let's talk again in our next Zoom meeting here in a couple hours. <laughs> Sounds good. Thanks, Andrew. <laughs> Take care, Holly. Thank okay. you. Learn more about how the Bush Institute is working to ensure all U.S. students are prepared for college and a career at www.bushcenter.org slash edreform. If you enjoyed today's episode and would like to help us spread the word about The Strategist, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all the major listening apps. If you're tuning in on a smartphone, tap or swipe over the cover art. You'll find episode notes with helpful information and details you may have missed. The Strategist was produced by Ioana Pappas at the George W. Bush Institute in Dallas, Texas. Thank you for listening.